Psalm 16, verse 1, a mictum of David. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, it has been said that affections are the lifeblood of the human experience. That before you and I are moved upon to take any action, whether great or small, we first must be moved and motivated at the heart level to some degree. That without affections in our life, we are merely dormant, lifeless creatures. Uh, children, we have you with us this morning, and I'm glad for that. I was thinking this morning, think of your favorite toy. Uh, maybe a doll or an action figure. It was Power Rangers for me when I was a kid. Before you pick up that toy, they're lifeless, motionless, dead. But when you pick up that toy, you bring it to life. It's the same with affections. And this is the same for everyone. This is the same for believers and unbelievers. And the primary distinction between the two is that those who are in Christ have had their affections renewed, transformed, redeemed. The heart of stone that could not respond to divine stimuli is taken away, and we're given a heart of flesh that can respond with loving affections towards God. Jonathan Edwards, pastor, Puritan, theologian, philosopher, regarded as one of the greatest minds that America has seen, labored at great lengths to demonstrate the importance of having our affections renewed. In his classic book, Religious Affections, what I would, I would recommend every believer grab it and read it. Within it he says, we see the world of mankind to be exceedingly busy and active, and their affections are the springs of motion. But take away all love and hatred, all hope and fear, all anger, zeal, and affectionate desire, and the world would be, in a great measure, motionless and dead. There would be no such thing as activity amongst mankind or any earnest pursuit whatsoever. He goes on to say that he who has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only without affection never is engaged in the business of religion. In other words, to claim Christ as our own, but to never be moved with affectionate love towards him could be an unprofitable profession of faith. And this morning, we're going to look at this Psalm of David. And the bulk of David's life is found in First and Second Samuel and a few other places in Scripture. But I love the Psalms because within them we see a man before paper 
bleeding his heart out onto it. We peer into the substance of his soul, his core, his makeup. Within the Psalms, we see all types of affections. Things like fervent love, admiration, earnest desire, exultation, inward groanings, thirstful pantings, overwhelming delight, and consuming zeal. And I would argue that all of those things is the stuff that gives life its color. Like, is it not true that all of us here long to be moved at the heart level, long to gaze into something beautiful, moved at the soul? I think that's why we visit extraordinary places like islands, mountains, canyons. We want to be stunned by beauty. It's why we have favorite authors. It's why we have favorite artists, because they reach us at the core and move us. And we pay money to go see them and to experience it more. It's why we stare into a color-saturated sunset. Or children, it's why you stare into a display of a thousand fireworks. It's because it moves us. It motivates us. And while we might marvel at many things in life, what we'll see in Psalm 16 is that God has so designed all of us to find our deepest heart's longing satisfied in him. And rightfully so, because he himself is the source of life. Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the life abundantly given by Christ is not fame, riches, fortune. It's not worldly gain, but it's the surpassing joy of knowing him and having him. And as we'll see in Psalm 16, it's having him as our refuge, our good, our inheritance, our portion, our great reward, and being made alive in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So this morning, I want to walk through the affections of David in Psalm 16, the psalmist of Israel. And my heart's prayer for me, my heart's prayer for us has been that these affections, these lyrics would be our own. They would be our own affections towards the Lord of glory, that we would be moved with love towards him because he first loved us. Amen? Amen. So we're going to go through all 11 verses, and think of this somewhat as a 30,000-foot overview. So we're not going to go into all the details, but we're going to cover each verse uh, one by one. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Immediately, we're taken into the heart of David's ardent prayer. The Hebrew, shamar, is to keep, to save me. Don't let me go. Preserve me, O God. It's a desperate, heartfelt plea and cry. And I think the most important thing about this heartfelt plea is what he's seeking preservation from. And I think that's going to be answered in verse 4 when we get there. But the first thing I want to ask this morning that I'm asking myself is, am I praying desperate prayers? I'm greatly convinced that if I don't find myself praying desperately, then it's 
in large part due to the fact that I'm not seeing clearly. I'm not seeing the glory of God. I'm not seeing my need of him, my desperateness. In his book, Praying Life, by Paul Miller, which is a book the church has been going through for the course of this year, he says if we're not seeing ourselves praying desperately or even at all, he says, quote, that you are quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life to overcome. In other words, a lack of prayer in our life demonstrates that our strength is not found in the Lord, but found in other abilities or other gods, possibly. Question, do you have a tone of desperation in your prayer life because you recognize that your complete dependency is upon him? I need thee every hour. That's been one of my favorite hymns for many years. It's also one of the most convicting hymns because in it I'm confronted. Do I really live that way? As if I'm dependent upon you for my entire life in every circumstance. Verse two, David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So there's two lords here, uh, but two different meanings. The first Lord, all caps, Yahweh. The second Lord, Adonai. So he's saying, I say to the Lord, Yahweh, you are my Lord, Adonai. And Adonai was a term that was used for reverent respect towards someone in authority. Very likely that David would have called the Lord Adonai, but then also would have called Saul Adonai. And essentially what he's saying here is I have other lords in my life. I have other authorities that I have to come to terms with. We have bosses. Our bosses have bosses, supervisors, managers. We have all types of authorities over us. What David is saying, I have made Yahweh my supreme authority. And I recognize that every other authority in life derives his authority or her authority from the Lord. And as the one who is the Lord of my life, you govern all the good in my life. And ultimately, you are the good in my life. We have other goods, other ways the Lord has blessed us, but in all of it, if I'm not seeing God in it, then it's no good at all. And may all the good that comes my way in life return back to him in praise and thanksgiving and glory to his name because from him are all things and to him are all things. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Question, how are you doing with that one? So, so the, the situation here is David is saying, the Lord is my Lord he is my good, my joy, my delight. But as I look out into the land, I see others who have made the Lord their delight. And therefore, they are now my delight. And that's beautifully displayed in the friendship between Jonathan and David. They each see in the other zeal, affectionate love towards God, and they're instantly connected at the heart level. Are you loving the body? Are you delighting in the body? Are you delighted to see, encourage, fellowship with, share life with those who have been purchased by the same Lord? Or is it more true of us that we can be quite critical of the body? 
critical of the family of God? Do we tear down more than we give thanks for? Do we destroy more than we build up? Are we in tune with the commandment of Christ in John 13, 34, where he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So the standard for Christ and how you and I are to relate to one another is love. And the standard for the type of love is as he has loved us. How are we doing with that? A week or so ago, uh, my wife and I uh, were traveling, did some vacationing uh, with her family in Florida, uh, tried to tie that in with what they call a baby moon, uh, or what some of you might call the calm before the storm. Uh, but regardless, we were, we were traveling, we were commuting, and um, shuttle driver or Uber driver, I don't remember, a kind gentleman comes, takes our luggage, and I couldn't help but notice he's wearing a Dallas Cowboy ball cap. And I knew right then, this is still America's team. <laughs> I love the laughter. Some of you Texans fans are going to tune out uh, the rest of the sermon. That's okay. There's still hope for you. You can come to the silver and blue. But immediately I found in my heart an affectionate um, attitude towards him. Because of the affinity that we shared, small it may be, but because of that commonality, I felt in me with a stranger a type of delight. You love my team. I love that team. That's awesome. That's great. And maybe you've been out of state, found your place yourself in a place where you wouldn't see someone wearing your favorite team's gear, but you do. And in that, you rejoice. If you get to pass by them or talk to them, there's instant delight because of a shared affinity. But beloved, more than any other shared affinity that we might have is the fact that we are all one in Christ, blood purchased by the same Lord of glory. And do we recognize that each member of the body manifests a different aspect of the image of Christ? That as Christ is in the body, we are to delight in Christ in the body. When we look to scripture, delight in each other isn't a gospel afterthought. It's a central reality. Verse four. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So I believe the connection to verse one, like I said, is found here in verse four. Preservation from other gods. Why? What happens when the Lord isn't our supreme Lord? What happens when other goods take the preeminence in our heart over the Lord? David says, pain, sorrow, shame. Some of us here have felt that sting. I have felt that sting. And David says, I've resolved in my heart not to go there. As Seth said last week as he closed off Ephesians 6, with regards to spiritual warfare, there will be competing gods. There will be competing delights, competing goods, treasures, things that our sinful fallen nature has a gravitational pull towards. 
it's coming. The moment we leave, it's coming. And many of us, like David, have made the same resolve. I'm not going there again. I'm not doing that. I'm not clicking on that webpage. I'm not scrolling there on my phone. I'm not using my tongue that way. I'm not thinking those thoughts again. I've resolved. I'm not doing it. Good. You've resolved like David, but what does he do? He then takes that resolve to the throne. I have said it. Now, Lord, keep me. Preserve me. Sustain me with your joy. Keep me seen clearly because I know my sinful flesh. I know Robbie's gravitational pull towards sin, and if it's left to myself, I'm going to fail. So I'm dependent upon your spirit in my life to keep, to preserve me. This is where the desperation comes. I don't want to leave your presence. Resolve is good, but what we must do is take that resolve before the throne and lean upon the grace and strength that's provided by the Holy Spirit. Verse five and six, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So inheritances at that time were distributed to, to families and clans by, uh, via lots. Uh, think uh, maybe rolling dice or drawing sticks. That's where we get the term, got the short end of the sticks. And, and David says, over all my inheritance, the Lord determines my lot. He determines my life circumstances, my everything. And there's nothing that comes my way. There's no situation in life that God did not bring me to. And wisdom might ask in every situation, in every circumstance, Lord, what are you showing me? What do you want me to learn from this? You decide my fortune. You set my circumstances. You decide my place, my times, my inheritance. You govern the whole of my life. From time to time, we might hear stories of great inheritances being passed down to somebody. Maybe somebody received an inheritance that they didn't even know they were to have. And when we see fortunes like that handed down, if you're like me, sometimes your mind starts to think, man, that guy had a lucky lot in life. What would I do with such a large amount of money if it was just placed in my lap? Where would I go? What would I buy? How many season tickets to the Astros would I purchase? And David is saying, of all the inheritances that the world has to offer, if you were to place it on a scale, it might look really good. But if you were to take Christ Jesus and put him on the other side of that scale, he would infinitely outweigh it all. All the inheritances of the world cannot compare to the joy that we will experience in his presence forever. And we'll get to that. I bless the Lord, verse 7, who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. One way to understand this could be that David is saying, all these realities from verses 1 through 6... I didn't make this up. I wasn't seeking it. 
God opened my eyes to the reality of who he is. God has revealed to me his beauty. His spirit has pursued me. He has shown me that he is my Lord. He is my good, my portion, my cup, my inheritance. I didn't earn this. I didn't make this up. I didn't position myself here under the waterfall of grace that's being poured down on me, that's being poured down upon us. I'm a receiver of all of these things by grace and by grace alone. Therefore, I bless the Lord. He says, at night, my heart also instructs me. I was thinking this week, what keeps me up at night? What keeps you up at night? What wakes you up in the night? What do you find your mind pondering, thinking? I would say, is, is it not the things that are closest to our hearts? In other words, the things that we are affectionate towards? And maybe for some of us here, it's, it's pain, anxieties, concerns. Those can certainly keep us up at night. Sometimes it's joy. Sometimes it's happiness. And those are sweet moments when those things keep us up at night. And the beautiful thing that if it is anxiety, that scripture says we can cast our anxieties before him and in that receive rest, peace, assurance in him. And this week I couldn't help but remember um, the night before my wedding. Uh, after all the festivities, groomsmen were over at my place and we were eating pizza and watching Gladiator like men do, wishing we could be like that. And then decided, hey, we got a long day tomorrow. We should get some rest. Really not like me, but we should do that. And um, within an hour or two, my best man saw in me an inability to sleep. I was tossing, I was turning, I was getting up frequently. I had so much anticipation within me. Another hour goes by and, and he decides, maybe if I turn on the Bible app for you and, and play Genesis 1 with that deep, you know, monotone voice, it'll soothe you right into sleep. Didn't work. Got all the way to chapter 16 before I realized, before he turned it off, and I was like, I was listening to that, um, and then decided, I gotta go for a walk. It was December, it was cold, it was winter, I just had to do it, it was dark, that's all I could do. Now, now what was the fuel behind my anticipation? It was my affections towards my bride-to-be. It was my love for her, my excitement to become one with her for the covenant that we were about to make before our friends and family. I was moved with love towards her. Now question, with regards to religious affection, do you still find your heart moved because of God's love towards you? Does your heart still skip a beat? Are you still moved with wonder, with awe of the inheritance that you have of Christ Jesus? Do you marvel at his greatness, at his eternality, as, at the vastness of his creation that fails to testify of how great and mighty he is? If we don't find ourselves there, 
I think one of the most beautiful prayers we can make our own is found in Psalm 119. Lord, open up my eyes that I might see wondrous things from your law. And the beautiful thing is if we find ourselves there, we can go before the Lord in honesty, knowing that he already knows, and plead with him, ask him, unblind my eyes, help me to see wonderful things from you. We're, we're a little bit more than halfway there, verses eight and nine. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwell secure. So David's basically saying he is the God who is before me and he is the God who is besides me. And to set the Lord always before us simply means that he's not behind us. He's not tossed to the side. He's not on a shelf. He's right here in front of me. And as I look out into the world and all the things that I set my mind to do, I see it through the lens of scripture. I have his glory in mind in all that I do. And I think to keep the Lord in front of us is a way that we abide in him, as we see in John 15. It's, it's tucking away his word in our heart so that when we are enticed by other gods, so that when we are threatened on all sides, so that when temptation comes and it will, we stand unshaken, immovable in him. To say that he's at the right hand meant that he was at a place of honor in his life. That's why Christ is said to be at the right hand of the Father in a place of high honor. So the Christian life is a daily placing the Lord before us and beside us, keeping him as our greatest treasure, keeping him as our greatest reward, keeping him as our greatest joy. And David says, because I can't be shaken, because the victory is won in him, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices and I dwell secure. And we see at this point, his affections, his confidence in God are growing and growing and growing. And he knows that even the sting of death isn't going to interrupt this joy and confidence that I have in him. And that brings us to verse 10, which starts to change up a little bit. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now there's a glaring problem here. You're probably thinking about it already. We see it a lot easier in 2023 because we know what happened to David. He died. But he says here, you will not let me see corruption. And so we see it here. I wonder what someone at that time might have thought reading these lyrics of David on paper. I know what I might have said. What do you mean, David, that you're not going to see the pit? That's what that word corruption means. It means the grave. What do you mean you're not going to die? Like David, everybody dies. Your father died. His father died. Moses died. Abraham died. What do you mean? I think David knew quite well, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that this verse could not be about him. 
And the reason why I say that is, is we see the Lord speak to him in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 through 12. The Lord says to David, When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. David knew his throne, as great as it was, was not a forever throne. At best, it was a prefiguration of the throne of Christ that he would come and establish, pointing to his kingdom that will last forever. And I love that song that we sang, Sing to Jesus, earlier. His is the throne. A thousand years later, from this time, we'll see more clearly that David's words we're transcending his own personal experience here in the words that he was writing. Peter picks up on this right here in his wonderful sermon in Acts 2 at Pentecost. And he says in verses 29 through 32, Brothers, I say with you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. David died, proof of that, his bones are over there. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, would not he would not, sorry, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. David died, bones are over there, we know that. Christ died, we put him over there, he's not there anymore. And we've seen his resurrected body. We have beheld with our own eyes. Augustine, I love this quote that he said, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. In the New Testament, we see Peter showing us that verse 10 was about Christ. But even more than that, throughout Peter's epistles, throughout the whole New Testament, we see that Christ was the fulfillment of the whole of Psalm 16. That all of the blessedness that David had been experiencing in this psalm were made possible by the grace found in Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to recognize. Not only that, but the whole of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. So how was David's relationship restored to God? We remember that he was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was a sinner just like you and me. How was he tasting this grace? By having faith in the promised Messiah who was to come. Having faith that he would be the one to nail his sins to the cross, that he would experience grace from one who would come through his lineage, Messiah, greater than he, with an eternal throne. The same way that you and I look back to the promise fulfilled, seeing our sins there nailed to the cross of Christ. And now we come to verse 11. You make known to me the path of life, 
In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As I said in the beginning, God has so designed all of us here to have our deepest longings satisfied in him, to find our joy in his presence. And the joy that we now taste as we have experienced Christ is just a morsel, just a foretaste of the joy that's to be experienced for all eternity. But I have another question for us. How do you measure the value that something has in your life? What's the measuring rod to know the worth that something holds in your heart? I would argue that oftentimes it's found in the thing that gives us the most joy. It's found in the people that give us the most delight. The things and the people that we delight in most, we will value most in our heart. In our marriage, Courtney and I at various times have had to be apart due to some jobs that I had, sometimes due to her work. And I tell her all the time, I hate being away from her because I get all out of whack. Like I feel like half a man when we're apart. But I get to experience something beautiful when we do have to part ways for a period of time due to various work opportunities. And, and what I experience is a, a unique way in which her affections are expressed to me. Because oftentimes when I have to leave the house or had had to leave the house for a work road trip or, or go get dropped off at the airport, in saying goodbye, she would be so moved with emotion, she would sometimes cry. Now that might be the pregnancy hormones, but I'm going to choose to believe that that's also love towards me. When the day, in the days that we are apart, she calls me. She messages me. She reminds me of how much she loves me. She tells me how thankful she is for me and how she cannot wait for us to be back together. The moment... I've landed from the airport. She wants to go straight from there to date night. No time to wait. We gotta catch up. She can't wait to share her week's experiences with me. She can't wait to hear what I've experienced in the week. She can't wait to feel like one again. And neither can I. And when she expresses that, I'm moved by her delight in my presence. She honors me when she displays to me how much she treasures being in my presence. I moved, but beloved, more than that, is that how much is God moved when his children delight to be with him, delight to be in his presence? And how much more will our joy be full when it is thriving in the presence of one who is infinitely greater than all. I'm just a man. I, I fail my wife at times. I make stupid, foolish mistakes. How much more when all of our hope and joy is found in one who is perfect and who has designed us and created us to be filled with his joy. Do you ponder from time to time the yearning 
of Christ as the bridegroom to be one with his church. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me would be with me where I am. Our takeaway this morning in closing, my prayer this week has been that the affections towards God that we see here in Psalm 16 would become ours. That today we would see him as our refuge, our good, our portion, our inheritance, our delight. That he would be our treasured great reward. And in that, let us seek to glorify God by enjoying his presence, in verse 11, forevermore. Amen. Let me pray.